Well, if you have your Bible, would you please turn with me to Psalm 65. Psalm 65. Another harvest psalm. Perhaps the, uh, the greatest of all. You'll notice the inscription says it's for the director of music, uh, which, was meant, which means that it was uh, meant to be used in the temple in Jerusalem uh, in the days after David, who wrote this psalm. David wrote this. He not only prepared the things for the temple, such as the, uh, the gold and the silver and the uh, uh, precious stones and the, the building materials and the timber and so on, but he also wrote the psalms to be used for that purpose. And it's an interesting thing to realise that before David, they didn't use music in worship. And the tabernacle had no music other than the song of, of Moses, which we only know of being sung once. But David introduced this, and we're so thankful he did. It says it's a psalm, uh, the Hebrew word mizmar, and uh, it says it's a song. And the Hebrew word there is different. It's the word shur. And you'll notice the next psalm, Psalm 66, also begins with that inscription. And so do the two following that. It's one of four in a group uh, full of thankfulness to God. So let's read it. Verse 1. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God, our Saviour. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest seas. Who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. Who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders. When morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Praise the Lord. Please keep your Bible open there. Last week we had uh, a visiting speaker, Eduardo, from Peru. And uh, it was a great, uh, the great message he brought us. And of course, this is the, uh, the, the country of Peru in South America. But you'll notice there's a place in, in Peru, which is, uh, I think it's about four or five hundred miles south of Lima, which is called Nazca. And in Nazca, you find 
a huge desert plain that has massive geoglyphs, as they're called, on, on the plain. Now, a geoglyph for an Englishman is something like the white horse. You know, we've got the white horse that devises, and there's one at Berkshire and others. It's a, it's a big picture on the ground. And there's massive geoglyphs in the middle of the desert here. Uh, Nazcar, and they're about 500 years old. They were made by the Nazcar people who lived in this desert, and you can only really appreciate them if you get up high enough to see them because they are so huge. Some of these have lines that go 12 kilometers long. They cover an area of hundreds and hundreds, I think it's about 450 square kilometers. And uh, there's, a, there's not just one or two, there's loads and loads of them. And they keep discovering more that have been covered over uh, by the desert. It's absolutely the stuff of, uh, uh, of legends. Uh, but the big question is, why are they there? Why are they there? Well, there's no shortage of conspiracies about this, whether it's aliens or something like that. But uh, one of the more sensible theories has been this, that they were written by the Nazcar people calling out for an end to the drought that made the desert that they were in. And there is a river nearby, the Rio Grande, and uh, they were asking for rain to, uh, to, to bring an end to this drought. And it was a, a plea to the gods that they worshipped, the false gods they worshipped, to send the rain. Sadly, the rain never came and the desert stayed a desert. But it's not the only country to have something like that. If you go to the South Pacific, there's an island there called Pentecost Island. Now, that's a good name for a Christian, isn't it? Uh, but it's, uh, it's not a very Christian island, I'm afraid. It's still in its pagan religions. And you'll find there the native people, who are very primitive people, they build huge scaffolds, 75 feet tall. And then... They climb to the top, the young men, they tie vines, not bungee ropes, this is not bungee jumping, they tie vines to their hands, so their hands are bound, and they tie their feet together, and they tie a vine, and they jump off the top, and the goal is to hit the soft earth with their head. Many of these people die doing that. And their mothers and their sisters are all gathered at the bottom, praying to the gods to spare the lives of their children. But they're doing it because they believe if they can succeed in doing this and surviving, the gods will send them rain. When I, when I thought, saw all these things, I, I thought to myself, you know, what a contrast we have in the Bible the true God, how gracious he is. There's nothing as, as vile as those pagan things, is there? Nothing so uh, awful as those things having to be done. The God of the Bible is a God who sends rain to his people and blesses it to them in answer of prayer. Like we read about Elijah in, in James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So God in the Bible gives rain in answer 
to prayer. And that was the occasion, we believe, for this particular psalm being written. You'll notice there's a mention of prayer in verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. In verse 5 it says, You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Saviour. And then down in verse 9 we get to the heart of the psalm where it says, You care for the land and water it. And we believe David wrote this psalm, Psalm 65, to to be a, a praise psalm to God for sending the rain in a time when it was needed at harvest. And so David was calling forth for praise to God for this. Uh, the opening verse, verse 1 says, praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. And David was saying, you know, with the temple, when it's built, we're going to praise you when this temple is built. That praise is going to be there for you in Jerusalem. We're going to praise you for what you have done in Zion. In the Hebrew, the word awaits there can also be translated silent. And it can be translated praise is silent for you, O God. Now, some people question that. Uh, You know, what, what do you mean praise is silent? But I want to tell you this, if you've never felt the need to be silent in the presence of a holy God, then you haven't really experienced reverence. You know, in Revelation chapter 8, we're told there's silence in heaven for half an hour. People are awed at God and his greatness. And David is saying, when we consider what you've done, Lord, there's praise for you in Zion. And to you our vows will be fulfilled. Our, Our harvest offerings will be bought as God commanded in the law. And in fact, this psalm was probably prescribed to be used at the feast of Israel called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And here's a funny thing for you. Today's the Day of Atonement. And uh, we're using this psalm for our harvest service for the very reason it was written on the day of the year that it was meant to be written. Because that was the day the priest went into the temple and was received by God. And you see in verse 3... Verse uh, verse 4, sorry, blessed are those you choose, or the King James says, blessed is the man you choose and and cause to come near, bring near to live in your courts, the temple, uh, 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 and uh, bringing forth God the sacrifice of praise. So it was, it was to be brought on the Day of Atonement ahead of the next festival, which is the Feast of Tabernacles in seven days' time, which will be a harvest festival of thanksgiving to God. And uh, what a, uh, after, sorry, yes, in seven days' time, a harvest festival to God. So what a psalm of praise it is. And Scroggy, the great Bible commentator, said it's the most perfect harvest song ever written. And I agree. And I think that's why we should use it this morning uh, for our worship. Because what we see David praises God for in this psalm is three things. He gives praise for God's grace in verses 1 to 4, for God's greatness in verses 5 to 8, and for God's generosity in verses 9 to 13. It's a psalm that falls into three groups. It starts off in the courts of the temple. Then it goes to the coast. uh, And we talk about the sea and the power of the sea and God's power over the sea and then we go to the cornfields at the end and we see God's blessing in the harvest it presents God as the redeemer it presents God as the creator and then finally it presents God as the provider 
So what a wonderful psalm it is. And I'd like us to consider it this morning as we worship the Lord and give him praise. John Calvin said, God's goodness to his people is a constant source of new reasons for praise. And I trust we'll find that so here this morning. First of all then, David gives praise for God's grace. You know, someone said that uh, one of the wonderful things about being a Christian is that God gives us grace now and glory hereafter. And that's a good summary of what it means, isn't it? You know, we've got heaven glory ahead of us, but he gives us grace now. And that's what David is describing in verses 1 to 4. The grace that God has shown to the people. And he starts with prayer. He says in verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. You know, what a wonderful, gracious thing prayer is. David knew the power of prayer. He had been a man of prayer. And of course, he had been uh, discipled by Samuel, who was a man of prayer, who had been discipled by his mother, Hannah, who was a woman of prayer. There's a heritage of prayer in the life of David and in the story here. And David rightly says, oh, you who hear prayer, because God does hear prayer, to you all men will come. When men know that God answers prayer, they will come to him. I wonder if you ever saw that film, Forrest Gump. I didn't really like it that much, but one of the quotes I remember from that film was this. It says, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> and isn't that true? You know, it's unexpected events in life. And how wonderful to be able to take things to God in prayer and to call on the Lord in every situation. I read a lot of uh, missionary magazines and everything uh, like that because uh, we just see constant testimonies of God's goodness. And this is a testimony by a man by the name of Daniel Dyer. Daniel Dyer is a, 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 a medical missionary in Papua New Guinea. And he worked at a, at a hospital there uh, at, uh, at Kujip. Uh, the Kujip Nazarene Hospital in Papua New Guinea. And he was uh, at the end of a, a very long day working in the intensive care unit in that hospital. He was exhausted and he was about to clock off and go home when somebody brought in a little three-year-old boy. And his parents brought him in. His name was John and he was three years old and he was limp in his father's arms. This little boy had fallen six feet and hit his head on a rock. And he had been limp ever since. So they rushed him into emergency care. And uh, they linked him up to uh, uh, IV. And then they started uh, seeing if they could revive him. But there was not much response. They did an x-ray. And the x-ray revealed a depressed skull fracture. And the bones of his skull had been pushed down into the place where his brain would normally be. And, uh, and, and Daniel was very worried about what this meant for this little boy. And he said this in, in the testimony I read. He said, we tried a few interventions to decrease the pressure on John's brain. But discouragement weighed heavy on my shoulders. Without much hope. I gathered the family together to let them know my concern for his prognosis. When I offered to pray, they were thankful and full of faith, more than I felt capable of at that moment. With a heavy heart, I walked home. 
I prayed for John again as I went to bed, entrusting his life into the hands of the great physician. The next day, I braced myself for the worst. But to my amazement, John was sitting up in bed and eating. The following day, John was walking, and the day after that, he left the hospital with his family. We truly serve an awesome God. It's just a beautiful testimony, isn't it? And it's uh, what David's thanking God for. You know, God hears prayer, so people will come to him. No wonder D.L. Moody said, be careful for nothing, prayerful for everything, and thankful for anything. (laughs) God does it. But his grace also goes beyond prayer to the greatest need we have, which is pardon. You'll notice in verse 3, he says, when we were overwhelmed by sins... You forgave our transgressions. And David here is speaking here of the deepest need that man has. And that is the need for the forgiveness of his sins. The word transgression means to break God's law. And uh, if you were to break the speed limit in our country, you would be transgressing the highway code. And that's basically what sin is. It's to break God's holy laws. Sin is lawlessness, says 1 John. And David says we've done that. And we were overwhelmed by our sins. The word sins there is actually the word iniquities. It means our crookedness as well. How can we be like this? You know, and you feel the depth of your sin and you feel so bad about what you're like. How can I be so perverse? How can I be so sinful with what I've done wrong? And David says, when we were overwhelmed by our sins, you forgave our transgressions. You know, to us, our sins were too big. It was insurmountable. How could God ever forgive me what I've done? But David says, when we felt like that, you forgave us. That's the greatest grace, the greatest grace. The hymn writer said, oh, faithful God, thanks be to thee who dost forgive iniquity. And this is the message of hope we have to share with the world today. There is a God who's so gracious He not only answers our prayers when we come to him in Jesus' name, but he forgives sins. And we need that. You see, if I can just use children's pictures to get it across. Okay, man is separated from God. Because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, we've been cut off from God. And our own sins have made it impossible for us to get to heaven and get to God when we die. We would rather instead, we would instead go to hell. But here's the good news. The Lord Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to make a way back to God. So we don't have to go to hell. We can go to heaven instead. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins for us. And it was laid on him, the things that we have done wrong. And he was our substitute. And he took our punishment on the cross when he died. And when he rose again, he died so that we could, he rose again so we could have eternal life. And now all we have to do is, as it were, walk across the bridge in faith. We come to God and we say, I receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. I ask you to forgive me. Come into my life and God will cleanse our sins and give us eternal life. That's God's grace, friends, and it's available to you today. But David also praised God for his presence as well, because it doesn't just end when we're forgiven. He says in verse four, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. 
You know, when we become believers, the Lord brings us near to himself. Just like that priest who's brought into the temple to worship God. So God brings us near. I love what F.B. Meyer said. He said, knowing myself, God would have to bring me. <laughs> and that's what he does, doesn't he? He brings us by his, his grace to himself. And, and we come near to him. And we have a life now living, as it were, in the courts. You know, it's a fascinating thing. I I really encourage you, if you're a Christian, to study the temple. Because when you think about it, the temple is so much at the heart of the Old Testament. You'll understand more of the Bible if you really study the temple uh, and what it was like. And and Google some pictures. There's a great app you can get as well I can let you know about, uh, which will take you on a 3D guided tour uh, around the temple. It's fascinating. But it will show you that on the side of the temple where the sanctuary was, there were buildings called chambers for the priests. And that's where the priests were able to live. Three tiers stall. And they were those who lived near God's courts where they could serve. Well, this is what our father does for us. We live near him. In fact, so near we're one with him. His spirit comes inside us and we become his temple and he lives in us. It's wonderful. And as David says, we're filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. Just as the priests were able to feed on the sacrificial meat and uh, receive the food for the offerings, for, partly for, for themselves as well as some offered directly for God, they were satisfied with the good things of God's house. And God satisfied us as well with his blessings. So I want to tell you today, we, we need to praise God for his grace before we begin anywhere else. Praise God for answering prayer. Have you had some awesome answers to prayer? Some wonderful answers to prayer? Listen, share them. Share them. After the fellowship and the morning service, you know what a lot of people do? The first thing they do, they start talking about the weather. Why not turn around say someone next to you or behind you, let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. And talk about him. Tell about his answers to prayer in your life, what he has done. Share those wonderful works of grace. The pardon you've received. Praise God for it if you've come to know Christ as your saviour. And if you haven't, do so. And the presence that we enjoyed, let's give thanks and praise for that this morning as well. But moving on, we come to the subject of God's greatness. And this is another thing to praise the Lord for. And this is what we see in verses 5 through to 8. You know, one of the uh, great preachers of more recent yesteryear uh, is a man whose name is pretty much uh, forgotten by my generation now. But he was one of the legendary preachers and a, and a great Bible teacher, a man by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse from America. And uh, if you can ever find him online to listen to, I really recommend it. He was a stalwart. He was sturdy and he really expounded and and, uh, really gave colorful preaching. Well, on one occasion, he was driving uh, out of Beaumont, Texas in his car and he pulled up at a traffic light 
And another car pulled up alongside him. It was summer, they had their windows open, and uh, he couldn't help overhearing the conversation between a father and his daughter in the car alongside him as they wakened at the traffic lights. And there was a big billboard at the end of the road, and the big billboard had been put there by the local churches, and it said, go and worship God in the church of your choice. That's what it said on the big billboard, trying to encourage people to go back to church. And the little girl looked at that and she said, Daddy, what does worship mean? And the father turned around and said, it means to go to church and listen to the preacher preach. And then he drove off. Barnhouse said, you know, he wanted to chase that man down and tell him what worship really means. It doesn't mean just to go and listen to someone preach, although we do worship God with our minds. But it means to understand the greatness of God and to praise him for it. And this is what David understood about the Lord. He understood we need to worship God for who he is, his greatness. And he he lists here the mighty acts of God. Again, coming back to that matter of prayer, you answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior. The word awesome there is the word for terrible. You know, sometimes there's, there's things, we say things like this, you know, it was so good, it was frightening. <laughs> that's a, a modern way of saying it. That's what David's saying. You know, sometimes God's answers are so amazing, they're almost, they're frightening. They're, it's frighteningly good. God's awesome deeds of righteousness, oh God our Saviour. And he says, because of this, the hope of all the ends of the earth, he calls God the hope of all the ends of the earth, and of the furthest seas. The word hope there is the word batam, and it means to have confidence. And he says, we can have confidence in you because you've answered our prayers. But then he moves into the creative aspect, and he says about God, who formed mountains by your power, in verse 6, having armed yourself with strength. Do you ever look at the mountains and want to worship God? If so, you're not alone. I feel like that every time. I love mountains. Give me mountains any day rather than the seaside. Uh, Mountains move me to worship. And I've seen the mountains of Switzerland and Canada and Austria and Italy. And I tell you what, it's fascinating how they're all alike and yet all different. And uh, they move you to worship. What I didn't know was mountains have a very important purpose in the earth. Because mountains, if you were to smooth out the earth, then we would be underwater to a depth of 6,100 feet. Life would be uninhabitable on earth. But the, the mountains help build up the continents so that we are able to have land mass. It also helps keep the heat in the earth so that the earth doesn't get cold. You have to have a certain amount of mass to keep in the heat. This is one of the problems with Mars. Mars is a a cold planet. It's a small planet because it doesn't have enough mass to it. But Earth does because of the mountains. I never realized that until I I read that this week. and And I was just amazed. God's power and purpose in making the mountains. And we see God's strength and power in that. But then in verse 7, he moves from the mountains to the seas. And he says, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Now, 
there's one thing uh, that is uh, uh, one of the frightening things that man can't control on the earth, and that is the sea. And every time we have a tsunami, we're humbled, aren't we, by the terrifying power of the sea. But David says here about God that he stilled the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. Now, at what point did God do that? Well, we could argue perhaps it was the dividing of the sea, the Red Sea for the children of Israel to leave Egypt. But I think David's speaking prophetically here of God the Son coming. And in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus stood up on the Lake of Galilee on a boat and said, Peace, be still. And they all went calm at his command. That's the power of our God to still the, the seas. And if he can still the seas, he can still the nations, which the Bible likens to uh, the, 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 the angry waves in so many places of scripture. I can give you a long list, but even if you just think of Daniel's dream in Daniel 7, he sees the, the nations churned up like the seas and these beasts coming out of it. But he says, you, the roaring of the waves and the turmoil of the nations. And God can bring peace among the nations in his power. And one day in the future when the Prince of Peace comes, we're going to see him do that. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was able to walk through a mob that was trying to kill him, he will bring peace to the world by his power, just like stilling the waters. But also he has power over people in verse 8. Those living far away fear your wonders, where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. And the amazing thing is, God doesn't just have power over the inanimate object he's created, but over people, the, the people who are spread out across the whole world. And David, in little Israel here, is talking about the Gentiles on the furthest part away from Israel. And he says, you cause even them to praise you. So that it's like when one, one side of the world is going to bed, Another side is waking up and saying, praise the Lord. It's a new day of worshipping the Lord. And today, as the clock goes round and the world goes round, the nations of the world are going to be praising the Lord uh, around the clock. It's a fascinating thing, this, isn't it? What God has done. He calls forth songs of joy from people all over the world. No wonder, because he is such a great God. There's a little boy who was leaving home early to go to Sunday school. And his father said to him, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Sunday school. He said, why do you want to go to Sunday school? He said, I want to learn about God. He said, well, what do you know about God? He said, not much. He said, but my Sunday school teacher knows him. <laughs> That's beautiful, isn't it? Do you know him? Do you know him? You know, the difference is, well, well, I'll tell you this. When I was in my first church, we had a lady who was converted, and she said this. She said, I always believed in God. I just didn't know you could know him. But that's what it means to be a Christian, and to know this great God, and to bring him our worship for his greatness. If you know him, praise him for who he is, and all his glorious attributes. And then thirdly, we see... Uh, David praises God for his generosity. And we come to the, the harvest part of the psalm here in verse 9. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. 
you know, in uh, 2018, a dream came true for a lot of people who were living in Siberia because an old-fashioned cargo plane that was carrying $368 million of platinum, diamonds, and gold spilled its contents as it took off and as it flew away. And there was literally gold and diamonds and precious metals falling from the sky. I wouldn't like to be the guy who didn't do the button up properly (laughs) on the back of that plane when it landed. But you know what? God doesn't just... Uh, God doesn't rain down precious stones and metals like that. He gives us something even more important which we need. He gives us rain from heaven. Without it, this world would be a desert, as we saw in the NASCAR situation. And so David says, you care for the land, you care for this land and water it and enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water. To provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. David is understanding here that the rain only comes because it's by a decree of God. Now this is in in theological terms. This is what we call God's common grace. It's his grace to all men whether they're saved or not. He he pours out uh, his sunshine and rain on those who are on the earth. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5. But it comes at the ordination of God. And he says because of it you drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. I love the fact he says you soften it. You know that's the type of rain you really want. You don't want rain that's going to beat down your crops. And you don't want rain that's going to cause your topsoil to get washed away. You want softening rain. And that's what David says God is able to do. And he praises the Lord for it. Not only does he give rain, but he gives produce as well. He says, you crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. And here, I imagine he's thinking of the people uh, as they bring in their harvest produce in their wagons. And he says, you know, look what God has done. And filling all our our wagons with with these crops and with the fruit. And then some of them would have brought them on their wagons to to the tabernacle of the temple for the feast of first fruits to offer to God. You crown the year with your bounty. Literally, you, you're, you're giving us your best. And this is why this psalm was used at this time of the year, because it led to the new year uh, uh, not long after this. And then it says uh, in verse 12 that the grasslands of the desert overflow and the hills are clothed with gladness. God gives the pasture and the farmland its it, its it's covering as well. The hills are clothed with your gladness. The King James says the sides of the hills. Uh, and they, it, I, I like that. I think that's more specific. Because, you know, all the sides of the hills need it. The north side as well. And one of the commentators picked up on the fact that if God left the north side because of its face, uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't get uh, the good, wouldn't, wouldn't do well for growing on. Uh, so the hills are clothed with gladness because of God's provision. And this results in good farming. Verse 13, the end of the psalm. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Both animals and crops God has provided. 
And do you know what? This is the time of the year, folks, when we remember that and we say thank you to God. You know, your generosity to give us so much. And we especially in this generation, we have so much that's given us. Yeah, there's a new hobby that's taken hold of people. I don't know if you've seen this. It's collecting the little fruit stickers. Uh, when you go to the supermarket, you see these little stickers on the bananas or on the melons or whatever it is. And they all come from different countries and different fruit growers. And they all have their own designs. And, you know, people are collecting these in books. You buy special albums. And Jarvis Cocker, the, uh, the guy who was the front man for the band Pulp, he's got a collection of, I think, something like 14... 1,400 of these, and uh, uh, it's, it's really taken hold. But I, I like that. It makes us appreciate, doesn't it? You know, how much we have, and it comes from all over the world, God's generosity and goodness. How he rains down the blessings upon us. Isaac Watts said, We bless the Lord, the just, the good, who fills our hearts with joy and food, who pours his blessings from the skies, and loads our days with rich supplies. How grateful we ought to be and bring God our harvest praise. So I hope as we come to the end, you'll be moved to worship. And I hope if you don't know the Lord as your saviour yet, you'll come to know him. I was reading uh, uh, another one of those missionary magazines. Uh, this time it was the Samaritan's Purse one. And it had a story about South Sudan. And we know the situation in South Sudan. I was reading it because I was interested. And this lady here, whose name is Nishak, she's a widow. And she received uh, a gift, a financial gift from Samaritan's Purse to help her start a business so she could survive. And by God's grace, her little business is doing better and better. And she's surviving. And do you know what her testimony was at the close of that article? I am a devoted Christian. God is my saviour and my provider. I read that and I just thought, praise the Lord, that's beautiful. And may it be that each one of us here at Union Chapel this morning can say, I am a devoted Christian. God is my saviour and my provider. Let's give him thanks.